Hello, everybody. Welcome to 11th hour. Um, just a couple quick announcements. If you have a cell phone, if you could please silence it or turn it off, we would appreciate it. And also, at the end of the lecture, I will walk around with this microphone if there are any questions so everyone can hear. At the Iowa Writers' Workshop, there was one rule and one rule only. The writer shall not speak until the very end. Everything else came down to decorum, or lack thereof, with the payoff sometimes surfacing months or years later, or perhaps not at all. Today, Sabrina or Mark will consider what is that at the heart of this form of critique. Sabrina is the author of the poetry collections The Babies and Sim Sum. Her work includes a National Endowments for the Arts Fellowship and a fellowship from the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown. Her poetry and stories have appeared in Tin House, Lana Turner Journal, and American Short Fiction, among others. She has taught at Agnes Scott College, University of Georgia, Rutgers University, the University of Iowa, John Jay College of Criminal Justice, Goldwater Hospital, and throughout the New York City and Iowa public school systems. Please join me in welcoming Sabrina Ora Mark. Hi, everybody. Um, so, on the first day of workshop, when I was in graduate school, our visiting professor walked in, put a small grayish bag down on the middle of the table, and told us her father had just died, and those were his ashes. I don't remember finding this odd. I remember thinking she was sad, and she missed her father. She then began to disparage the law that keeps us from keeping the whole uncremated bones of our loved ones in our house, the whole skeleton, leaning up against, I imagine, the living room wall. If we inherit anything from our loved ones, shouldn't it be, at the very least, their bones? She had a point. For me, what is more astounding than this story is that every writing workshop doesn't begin like this that the material we begin with is so raw, why shouldn't the baby teeth of our children or the ashes of our fathers accompany us inside the workshop? Why shouldn't we critique with a lock of our mother's hair around our necks? So I googled, can I keep a human skeleton in my house? <laughs> Turns out, no. I, I knew this already, I think, but it's always good to double check. She was right. It's against the law. We are not allowed to possess each other's remains unless it's in the form of ashes. We are not allowed to possess each other's remains unless it's in the form of ashes. We are not allowed to possess each other's remains unless it's in the form of ashes. Sometimes it's good to say something three times just in case it's a spell. So after I had my first son, Noah, I took one semester off teaching poetry for practically nothing at the University of Georgia. When I, asked to when, I, when I asked to return, I was told they had nothing for me anymore. Nothing plus nothing. I counted it all up. I love the classroom, and I miss the classroom, and I knew I was a good teacher. I sniffed the head of my newborn and cried. And when I was done crying, I decided to build my own writing workshop. I hired a man, let's call him Names for the sake of anonymity, to renovate my garage. Half his work was beautiful. He exposed the beams and let in the light. 
he painted the old cement floor a shade called the dreams of mermaids. The other half of his work involved plumbing. No problem, he told me. When he spoke of the toilet, he referred to it as a commode. For some reason, this led me to believe I was in good hands. I trusted him, though I knew he wasn't a trustworthy man. I already knew things about him. I tried to forget because I so desperately wanted the workshop to be beautiful, and I wanted the workshop to work. One thing I reminded myself had nothing to do with the other, but it does. Everything has everything to do with everything else. So with my credit card, he kept going back to the hardware store for more and more pipes. He kept disappearing under my house and emerging caked and baffled. Our water began to smell like glue and dirt. To make a long story short, he built a whole bathroom that didn't work, like something you might find in a dollhouse, I guess, but person-sized. He laid down all the tiles with the wrong grout, then tried to fix it by pouring three bottles of Clorox over everything and leaving the floor to seep overnight, and then to seep the next night too, and then the next night too. I asked him if the toilet would ever flush, and he looked at me like I had just asked him where God was, or what happens after we die. So this went on for months and months. And I finally called a real plumber to check his work. So do you want to know what you don't want to ever, ever see a real plumber do? Emerge from, your, from under your house, shaking his head, muttering, I've never seen anything like this. <laughs> he described the intricate web of pipes like some sort of imaginary road to nowhere. And when he described the pipes, I imagined them leading all the way back to the first terrible poem I ever wrote. Nothing worked. He just kept shaking his head. So Names left me with $6,000 worth of damage. His assistant, who had once been my dear friend, but that story is not this story, except it is, gave me an old mirror as an apology. Unlike the entire bathroom, the mirror worked perfectly. <laughs> when I looked into it, I could see my own defeated reflection. I hung an embroidery up in my workshop that reads, everything will be okay. Everything is going to be okay. And then I wrote a story about names whose names is not names, who I call king in the story. It's called, You're Hurting My Feelings. If we have time later on, um, I'll read the story at the end of the lecture. So often my students will ask me about writing about other people. Is it moral, we all, want, we all wonder. What is off limits, what is on? Sometimes I go with Anne Lamont who says, we own everything that happens to us. Tell your story, she said. If people wanted you to write warmly about them, then they should have behaved better in the first place. <laughs> Or as I now put it, if Names didn't want me to write a story about him and then give this lecture, he should have fessed up. Instead, he puffed out his chest and got in my face in the way no one should ever get in the face of another. He looked like he wanted to hit me, 
My expectations, he insisted, were unreasonable. He told me the toilet might flush if I run the washing machine at the exact same time. <laughs> he blamed the city of Athens. Call the city, he said. It's their goddamn fault. All their pipes are breaking. When he said this, all I wanted was for him to be gone and never to return. He was scaring me. But instead of what is okay to write about and what is not okay to write about, I think the better question with the better answer goes something like this. What compels us to write? Why do we keep going back for more? My oldest son takes apart his toys. His favorite superheroes are often missing their legs. Capes are torn off only to re be replaced by little squares of gauze. He always wants to look inside things. There is the superhero, but then there is what is inside the superhero, and then there is the superhero in pieces, and then pieces are missing, and then we go looking for those pieces, and sometimes we find the pieces, but often we don't. I once found Flash's head in my makeup bag, and it reminded me narrative is never fixed. It's an ongoing, movable feast. We can all end up anywhere. My son is engaged in an endless study in composition. I want to see all the inside parts, too. I don't know what I'm thinking unless I write it down. I don't know what I'm feeling unless I write it down, until I break off the arm and look inside. Or I write to keep myself from thinking and feeling too little. Writing increases my vulnerability to my vulnerabilities. It sharpens my focus. And when we sit in workshop and listen to each other read often what we have just maybe even merely hours ago written, we are experiencing each other in the most tender, fragile phase of creation. It's like when God holds up a chicken and asks the angels, tree yet? And the angels say, no, still a chicken. God needs those angels to check the work. I believe we need that too. So I should have gone under the house with names and looked at the pipes, but I was too afraid and I am not fluent in plumbing and probably would not have been able to read what was there, but I should have looked. So as we began repairs on the workshop, I took the most solace in knowing that the actual space of it began as a failure. It started off wrong as most poems and stories do. Names wrote a whole poem with a toilet that couldn't flush. It was the worst metaphor. We'd have to hold everything in or we'd have to fix it. <laughs> so once when I was in a workshop as an undergraduate, I remember a tall, beautiful, practically see-through student getting sick while we workshopped her poem. She stood up, leaned against the wall, put the back of her hand on her forehead, and slid all the way down, crumpling like expensive paper. Our professor, without getting up, kicked a small trash can in a perfect line towards her mouth, into which she started vomiting. No one asked her if she was okay, including me. I remember no one helping her. I am ashamed of myself as a 20-year-old thinking the poem should be bigger than the body. The woman's name, I remember, was Barbie. So Andre Breton, 
praised hysteria for being one of the greatest poetic discoveries of the 19th century, not only because the hysteric fit could be read as one of the ultimate forms of bodily expression, but because the composition of the poem and the fit share many of the same characteristics. Barbie became the poem she was writing, and instead of applauding, we all turned our heads away in disgust. Helen Sissois describes the hysteric as being given images that don't belong to her, and then she forces herself to resemble them. It's not unlike the pregnant body, too. Charcot, who became a physician in 1862, devoted much of his practice to the hysteric, not healing her, but classifying her symptoms, symptoms that involved disturbances, motor disturbances, tremors, contractions, paralysis, difficulty in walking or standing, deafness, and tunnel vision. He graphed the fit, dividing hysteria into four phases, phases that very closely for me resemble the poem or the story in mid-composition. So the first phase is the debut phase, and this is how Charcot describes it. Lower abdominal pain moving into the area of the stomach, then heart palpitations, the sensation of a lump in the throat, buzzing in the ears, beating and pounding in the temple, and finally an impairment of vision. The first phase resembled an epileptic fit, comprising of cries, loss of consciousness where the body would fall to the ground, and an, in, an ensuing rigidity of muscles would occur. In its perfect manifestation, the hysteric patient would perform convulsions, circular movements of the body. The second phase was the clown phase, where the hysteric would exhibit an extraordinary expenditure of muscle power, eccentric body turnings, bizarre body postures, all marked by unusual flexibility, mobility, fluidity, and sheer physical force. The patient would bend completely so that her body made a bridge and only her head and feet would rest on the bed. Charcot marked this phase as being illogical while interpreting it as a theatrical miming of anxiety, fear, or a fit of anger directed towards oneself or towards a stranger. The third phase involved fragments of sentences. In this phase, Charcot understood the hysteric to be converting her psychic drama into a personal drama in which she believed she was playing the main part. Whether these performances were comic or tragic, Charcot claimed they were representations of the patient's psychic reality, love scenes, fires, wars, revolutions. Charcot would then record and transcribe these fragments of sentences in order to construct a coherent narrative that would then impose order on what at first appear to be grotesque or incoherent. The final phase is when the hysteric regains consciousness, and it is marked by loud crying and sobbing or laughter. So here, and these are some of the photos um, of Charcot's hysterics. So here, the body of writing and the body become inseparable. There is interruption, 
paralysis, caesura, which is breaking the line with a pause in the middle, like the bodily acrobatics of the hysteric, a curve in the stomach. Delay of consciousness, ellipticism, circular movements, repetition, fragmentation, all of these words that we use um, when we're critiquing stories and poems. Um, and then ultimately some kind of closure that implies an inevitable reopening at a later time so that the sobbing or the laughter is never fully completed. Elizabeth Bronfen refers to the entire fit as an awful rowing. She could have easily called it a poem too. So Charcot had his patients reenact these fits during his Tuesday lectures so that they ultimately took on um, a kind of theatrics. These women won fame as in Paris as they performed their language of hysteria as a public spectacle, becoming more and more dramatic as they saw the effect of their performance on the audience. I think about Barbie a lot. Someone should have helped her up. I should have helped her up. So my six-year-old son tells me his friend, who is an only child, told him he once had a baby brother, but the baby brother was hit by a car in a parking lot and died. The story isn't true, thank God. Um, he was, he told my son, holding his baby brother's hand when this happened, a detail as a poet, I appreciate. But the so and the trauma of being alone for the boy was worse than his imaginary baby brother's death. It's like his childhood is a story or a poem he is writing, but he has no one there to read it, experience it beside him as he is experiencing it. And so he invented a dead baby brother, a kind of ghost workshop, an angel witness, an audience. When my sons cry, I hold them and I say, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry, when really I should just say, cry, 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 or I should just say nothing. But it's very difficult to witness each other in pain. But I believe one of the reasons we're all in so much pain in the first place is because we don't give enough witness to each other. My workshops are where we can spill our guts and then learn how to rearrange the guts formally in lines or sentences, making certain that these lines or sentences still have on them the faint scent of those guts. I grew up in a lot of workshops where we were told to ignore the guts. No guts here, no crying aloud, only thing of worth here is the poem born from virgin after virgin after virgin. Something, I'm sorry, happens before a poem happens. My workshops leave open the space to return to that something. So I've, as I was writing this lecture, I was asking different writers um, about the strangest thing that had ever happened to them within a writing workshop. So here's a little miniature list. Literal smoke rising from typewriter in corner of room. <laughs> Student pulled out a box of action figures and started posing them on his desk during workshop. Everybody started crying. 
An instructor gave, some stu gave a student some feedback, some feedback she didn't like on a poem, and so she ate it. One day a student came to a summer poetry workshop. Oh, this is a, a little story. One day a student came to a summer poetry workshop I was teaching with a tight rubber band stretched over the bridge of his nose and the tops of his cheeks. The next day he came back to class without the rubber band but with a deep line of um, red welts where the rubber band had been. And a student asked him, Jack, what happened to your rubber band? And he said, what rubber band? And she said, the rubber band you were wearing on your face yesterday. And he said, I wasn't wearing a rubber band on my face yesterday. <laughs> a woman pulled an electric frying pan out of her bag and fried eggs in the middle of workshop and then ate them. <laughs> a woman removed her pants and started applying solve to a burn. And finally, a 45-minute conversation about what it might feel like to shit feathers. <laughs> so, in Samuel Beckett's Malloy, have any of you read Malloy? Oh, okay. Well, in Samuel Beckett's Malloy, Malloy, who is in his mother's room, cannot remember how he got there. He cannot remember if his mother was dead when he arrived, or dead after, or even dead enough to bury. Malloy cannot remember his own name, and he has a thing for sucking stones and wants to establish the best way to distribute the 16 stones he has to suck among his four pockets so that he sucks each stone equally. So no stone is sucked less than another stone. And so I'm just going to show you this clip um, from Beckett's Malloy, and then um, I'll talk a little bit about it. I'll read it for a while so you get the drift. I don't want you guys to start throwing things at me. So, I took advantage of being at the seaside to lay in a store of sucking stones. They were pebbles, but I call them stones. Yes, on this occasion, I lay in a considerable store. I distributed them equally between my four pockets and sucked them turn and turn about. This raised a problem, which I first solved in the following way. I had, say, 16 stones, four in each of my four pockets, these being the two pockets of my trousers and the two pockets of my great coat. Taking a stone from the right pocket of my great coat and putting it in my mouth, I replaced it in the right pocket of my great coat by a stone from the right pocket of my trousers, which I replaced by a stone from the left pocket of my trousers, which I replaced by a stone from the left pocket of my great coat, which I replaced by the stone which was in my mouth as soon as I had finished sucking it. Thus, there were still four stones in each of my four pockets, but not quite the same stones. And when the desire to suck took great took hold of me again, I drew again on the right pocket of my great coat, certain of not taking the same stone as the last time. And while I sucked it, I rearranged the other stones in the way I had just described, and so on. But this solution did not satisfy me fully, for it did not escape me that, by an extraordinary hazard, the four stones circulating thus 
might always be the same four. In which case, far from sucking the 16 stones turn and turn about, I was really only sucking four, always the same turn and turn about, but I shuffled them well in my pockets before I began to suck, and again while I sucked, before transferring them in the hope of obtaining a more general circulation of the stones from pocket to pocket. But this was only a makeshift that could not long content a man like me, so I began to look for something else. I might do better to transfer the stones four by four instead of one by one, that is to say, during the sucking, to take the three stones remaining in the right pocket of my great coat and replace them by the four in the right pocket of my trousers, and these by the four in the left pocket of my trousers, and these by the four in the left pocket of my great coat, and finally these by the three from the right pocket of my great coat plus the one as soon as I had finished sucking it, which was in my mouth. Yes. It seemed to me at first that by doing so, I would arrive at a better result. But on further reflection, I had to change my mind and confess that the circulation of the stones four by four came to exactly the same thing as their circulation one by one. For if I was certain of finding each time in the, great, in the right pocket of my greatcoat four stones totally different from their immediate predecessors, the possibility nevertheless remained of my always chancing on the same stone within each group of four, and consequently of my sucking. Not the 16 turn and turn about as I wish, but in fact, four only, always the same turn and turn about. So I had to seek elsewhere then in the mode of circulation for no, for, for no matter how I cause the stones, stones to circulate, I always ran the same risk. And then I'll skip. There was something more than a principle I abandoned when I abandoned the equal distribution. It was a bodily need, but to suck the stones in the way I had described, not haphazard, but with method, was also, I think, a bodily need. Here, then, were two incompatible bodily needs at loggerheads. Such things happen. But deep down, I didn't give a tinker's curse about being off my balance, dragged to the right hand and the left, backwards and forwards. And deep down, it was all the same to me whether I sucked a different stone each time or always the same stone until the end of time. For they all tasted exactly the same. And if I had collected 16, it was not in order to ballast myself in such and such a way or to suck them turn about but simply to have a little store, so as never to be without. But deep down, I didn't give a fiddler's curse about being without. When they were all gone, they would be all gone. I wouldn't be any worse off or hardly, or hardly any. And the solution to which I rallied in the end was to throw away all the stones but one, which I kept now in one pocket, now in another, and which, of course, I soon lost or threw away or gave away or swallowed. So I have read and reread this sucking stone scene 1,000 times. And each time I think, oh, this is workshop. You suck the stone, and then you put the stone back in your pocket, but never the same pocket you retrieved it from. It's basically a mathematical nightmare. It is about doubt. Did I forget to suck one stone? Have I sucked one stone too many times? 
And it is about procedure, and it's about order, and it's also about pleasure. And it is about failure. But why stones? So stones are minerals pushed up from the Earth's core as the Earth's crust grows and erodes. Stones are the Earth's heart of the matter. They come from the center. And I am reminded here of Lot's wife who turns to stone, well, salt, a hard mineral, because as she fled Sodom, she looked back, perhaps for her daughters, perhaps to see the city. She turned back and looked like a poet looks to remember or see again, or like Charcot's hysterics, who all know the story is always left half open, who return over and over again. Lot's wife is there forever looking back. Find this. So Lot's wife is left there forever looking back. It's horribly unfair. And as I listen to Malloy and think, why stones? What is he after? I imagine Malloy putting his mouth around Lot's wife and loosening her out of her petrified state. Because I believe in Beckett, Malloy sucks to remember. Because right after Malloy casts off the sucking as hopeless, and after he says at the end, the solution to which I rallied in the end was to throw away all the stones but one, which I kept now in one pocket, now in another, and which of course I soon lost or threw away or gave away or swallowed, right after this moment, Malloy begins to see black specks in the distance, like memory. And we begin to understand that this unbearably, seemingly ridiculous, strange, maddening sucking brings Malloy to this. Not only did I see more clearly, he writes, but I had less difficulty saddling with a name the rare things I saw. Maybe I should have hired Malloy to build my workshop. Or maybe I did. <laughs> so while writing this lecture, a tree fell on my house. Nobody was hurt, and everything was repaired relatively quickly. And later, we found out a microburst had tore through our neighborhood, taking down dozens and dozens of trees. And a microburst, um, for those of you who don't know, I hadn't known, is a small downdraft that moves in a way opposite to a tornado. Um, but it's as powerful as a tornado, or sometimes more powerful than a tornado. And they go through three stages in their cycle. The downburst, the outburst, and the cushion stages, which sound to me like phases Charcot's hysterics might go through if they were weather or a craft assignment, as in write one downburst and one outburst. So our neighbor hired an artist to carve one of the fallen trees across the street from our house into a totem pole. Owl on the top, fox below her, and snake below the fox. A little science, a little art, a little myth, a little gratitude, a little apology, a little thank you to Mother Earth. 
The artist stared first at the tree for a very, very long time, like he was sucking on a stone. And I watched him watch the tree. And then I watched him carve these stories into the tree. And the finished totem pole is beautiful. But what I find more beautiful is being in the storm and being afraid and all the tree is falling down and watching the tree people come to carefully remove the trees and then watching the artist watch the tree and then carve the tree and then watching the owl appear and then the fox appear and then the fox's eyes appear and then the eyes are slightly changed and then the snake appears and what I find more beautiful than the finished totem pole, which is incredibly beautiful, is the story that lives inside the totem pole. My workshops are designed for writers to tell the whole story. And yes, at the end, you leave with a totem pole. You might even publish the totem pole. But I remember thinking I should only ever enter a workshop with a totem pole. The storm and the tree guys and the damaged roof and the fear should all stay outside the workshop. But in my workshops, you bring that all in. It gets really crowded and uncomfortable, as it should. It's a way for us to process each other's remains in more than just the form of ashes. Also, we should have helped Barbie up. So, um, I'll just read you um, 10 assignments that I give um, in my workshops. Um, one is write five descriptions of mother. At least one should be fictional. One should be in fragments. One should contain at least one line of dialogue. One should be a dream. And one should take the form of a joke. Write two pages of questions. Every line should be a question. Write about what you believe for yourself is unwritable, what defies composition, and write it. But as you write it, have it wear a disguise or code it. Use your favorite line of a story and begin there, or use one of your, I'm sorry, use your favorite last line of a story and begin there or use one of your own last lines and begin there, which is to say, begin at the end. Write for as long as you can from the oldest part of your stomach. Write a poem about all the things you aren't writing about and will never write about. Write on a subject you know nothing to little about without using any secondary sources. Possible subjects can be sardines or Mars, or wisteria, or trains, or algebra, or the ocean. Begin telling a secret five to ten times, but never reveal it. And compose a poem, a story, a prayer, a joke, a chant, a letter that speaks the unspeakable. What happens to language when the unimaginable happens? What does language look like in the shape of a mouth with a hand clasped over it? And finally, write a letter to what mystifies you, obsesses you, keeps you, something like God or a birthmark or an old love or someone famous or snow or crying. So thank you. Um, and I don't know if 
uh, we have time for me to read the story or if you would rather ask questions. What would, you wanna hear the story? Okay. And I'll move it halfway through, okay. Um, so this, this story is called You're Hurting My Feelings. And it's based on names whose names, name is not names. I hire a man to build me a house. His name is King. G is silence, he says. King, he says. Kin, I ask. King, he says. I can still hear the G, I say. No, you can't, he says. Kin, I ask. King, he answers. G is silent, he says. How much, I ask. Hundreds of thousands, he says. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands and thousands and thousands. I agree. It is more than fair. I show him my acres. He stands on my acres. We stand on my acres. His pants are rainbow. He seems like the only man for the job. I look around. The sun is setting. There are no other men. He is the only man. His skin glows white. He smells like gauze. I can build you a house. Windows? I nod yes. Doors? I nod yes again. Water? I'm sorry. Electricity? Please. Roof? He asks. Seems necessary, no? To what? Asks King. To a house, I say. King looks up. To a house, he repeats. Is that okay, I ask? I'm sorry, I say. People like you, says King, says Kin. People like me, I want to ask, but instead I wonder accidentally out loud, a porch? Scented, asks King. Possibly like roses? He does a little hop. My face gives my happiness away. King pulls a crybear baby sugar packet out from his pocket. He smiles. His teeth are gray suds. He reaches for my collarbone and unclips a pen from my blouse. On the packet, he carefully writes, porch, scented, possibly like roses. He rips open the packet. Want some? No thank you, I say. No crybaby, just house. King opens his mouth wide, tilts his head back, and empties the packet like it's the last one on earth, like he's already triumphant. When he thinks I'm not looking, he crumples the packet and drops it on the ground. Something on my acres is a terrible person. King tells me to stand still. He measures the space between us. Less than I thought, he mutters. He looks at me funny. He will order materials. He will begin on Thursday. It will take him 100 days. Pinky promise, he says. He runs his hand through his stiff white hair, and I notice he has an extra pinky on his left hand. With his right hand, he takes my bones, half now and half when the house is built. This feels good, he says. King's eyes seem far away, and I imagine the one opening and closing on his face belonged to his father, or my father, 
or your father. This feels right, he says. I have always wanted to live in a house. I curl up on my acres and wait for King. Like a hospital, the hope in my heart stays open. On Thursday, King does not arrive. On Friday, King does not arrive. I stand on my acres. On Saturday, I am cold. On Sunday, I call for King. No answer. On Monday, there goes King, exactly as I remember him. Stop, I say. Where have you been, I ask. He gently weeps. I have been floral. Silence. He looks at me for a long time. His eyes soften like sawdust. I have been forest. I have been feast. I have been fighting frostbite on my face. Where have I been? I have been forever. Plus, it's only the 5th of February, isn't it? He wraps his terrible arms around me. I have been frightened. My bones spill from his pockets. King sags. I hold him up. It is so clear what is happening. He has been where the Fs are, right before the Gs. The G is silent. His name is Kin or King. He will begin on Tuesday. He presses a crybaby sugar packet into my palm. Everything is understandable. On Tuesday, King arrives with a crew of kings. I count seven. I cannot tell one king from another. They sit on my acres in a large circle. They are very sad. I do not think a sea will appear today, says King. Nor do I, says King. Nor do I, says King. After several hours, one king stands up, looks around, and slowly walks away. The other kings follow, one by one, until they're all clocked out, until all the kings are gone. On Wednesday, King returns alone. He clocks in. He gives me the hammer to hold. A spray of dull nails blooms from his mouth. He takes back the hammer, and for hours he softly taps a single nail into my acres. My neighbor comes by. He wants to know what's all the racket. I show him my acres, which he truly admires. He has fewer acres, for I am far richer. I introduce him to King. G says King is silent. King, my neighbor, and I stand around the nail. The nail still has some time before it disappears into the soft great earth. Something is finally happening. The percentage of fiction we live with, says my neighbor, is much higher than we realize. For example, he says, kin. King, I ask. Yes, says my neighbor, kin. King clocks out. It will either one day be okay or it will never be okay. This seems more than fair. On Thursday, bright and early, King arrives with an assistant. Her name is Punch, and she is the size of a small sheep. She gives me a thick hug. I was the middle child. Often I was bleeding. Often I am still bleeding, she says. She shows me her hands. Her hands are bleeding. Her accent is dank and watery. Her feet move fast, but she never goes far farther than a few inches. Together, they appear to have no tools. I stand on my acres and wait. Punch and King 
read out loud to each other from the lives of saints and martyrs. When they are done with the book, they play jacks. Punch loses every time. The orange ball bounces towards me and I grab it. They show no signs of work or remorse. They clock out. They disappear. Months go by. My neighbor drapes some kind of fur over me. I fear it is sheep. During the day, I stand on my acres. At night, I lie down. Sometimes I bounce the orange ball. I begin to hate King Thinley. Where is my house? Nowhere. I can faintly smell a living room, but it's a dead one. Maybe you should pray, says no one. I wish to feel great. I wish to feel safe. In a minute, I will remember where I lived before never living here. In a minute, but first I am becoming mean. I sleep with my fists up. My neighbor who has fewer acres watches me from inside his house. It is possible he is falling in love with me. I see Punch and King floating above. I jump up and try to pull them down. They hover like balloons. I catch them by their string. They are not Punch and King. They are balloons. They are balloons celebrating something human. I stomp on their heads and they pop. My neighbor arrives with a gift. Housewarming, he whispers. It is clear he wants to touch me. I unwrap the package, bedsheets with black clouds. 1,160 days go by. Something motherish and still grows on my acres. When I approach the thing, it growls. I wish to feel safe. I wish to feel great. I cannot remember which is silence, the K or the G, kin, ing, in, but there is no in, there is only out. Punch crawls towards me, kindling, she says. I try to catch her, but she is surprisingly fast on her knees. There was a gust, shouts Punch, a gust blew us away, and then Punch is gone. Daisies bloom on my acres. Are you stupid? I ask them. I dream my neighbor is an apple. I slice him in half. Instead of seeds, I find 10 tiny brown mules. I explain to the mules, I wish to feel great. I wish to feel safe. Shut up, Nancy, they bray. Shut up. How do they know my name is Nancy? My own mother doesn't even know this much. When I wake up, my acres are strewn with empty crybaby sugar packets. Punch returns kingless. What if there is no king, asks Punch. What if there are no acres? It is winter. I draw a house on a crybaby sugar packet. Two windows, a door, a roof, a little chimney, and a scribble of smoke. I give it to Punch. A mule from my dream wanders by. I wish to feel great. I wish to feel safe. I can hear my neighbor opening and closing his front door. I collect all the crybaby sugar packets and build a great mountain. The mule from my dream kneels down. I climb up on his back. Together, we begin the long journey up the mountain. I wave goodbye to Punch, but she doesn't see me, or she pretends not to see me. 
What if none of this ever really happened, asked the mule. The mule's ears are so long and soft and beautiful. Into them I wish to whisper something true. Once upon a time, I begin, a very rich old woman gave half her bones away to a king. But the mule never hears the story. The crunch of the crybaby sugar packets under its hooves is too loud. It sounds, I imagine, like rain must sound against a window pane. Thank you. I think we're yeah. out of time. Okay, we're out of time, but thank you very much. Thank you.